All right, let's go to God's word for us this morning. Uh, we're looking at Romans chapter 9, and uh, it's, a, it's, it's quite a passage from uh, verse 6 to verse 26. And I'll read this for us, and let's try to give our attentive uh, listening to the word of God. Romans 9, verse 6 to 26. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever, whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Uh, we're in this series called Worldview, and we're uh, landing on the doctrine called Unconditional Election, or more commonly, it's known as um, the doctrine of predestination. And last week, Kevin did a great job, I thought, um, expounding on the Ephesians text that talks about predestination. And today, we turn to Romans 9, which is considered to be another big predestination passage. Now, here's what I want to preface uh, everything with, um, that when script, Scripture speaks about or talks about anything, it's talking to all of us, so meaning... It's not as though there are parts of the scripture that's meant for the intellectually curious, and then there are other parts for you know, those who are more artistically inclined. All of the Bible speaks to all of us. So we don't get to say, oh, okay, this part I'm going to just kind of in mentally check out because I'm not, I'm not interested in this particular topic. That's one. We've got we to take the whole counsel of God, whole word of God in mind. And 
more importantly, all of Scripture is always drawing out this general response from, from everyone, and that is primarily celebration and worship, uh, celebrating uh, what God has done and worshiping him as a result of what he has done, out of that sense of joy. Okay, so, right, if you apply those principles here, you got to then wonder, uh, hey, Paul, how are you going to manage to do that with this passage on predestination? How is this going to draw from us any celebration or, or, or call to worship? And I think he, he actually manages to do that um, as he talks about predestination in, in these three ways. He talks about uh, the basis of it. He answers the uh, common objections raised against it. And he also shows us uh, the, the person who's behind it. So uh, the basis, the objections, and the person. These would be our three main points today. All right, so let's start with the basis, the basis of uh, predestination or election. Um, here's a setting of the passage, okay? The Apostle Paul, in the very opening of this letter uh, to the Romans, he says the gospel or the word of God is the power of God to save, right? to give salvation to all those who believe. But then as he continues to write his letter, he laments throughout the letter that many of his fellow countrymen, Israelites, chose not to believe and fell away, are falling away still. Well, okay, how can that be? How can the word of God be powerful to save on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, the hearers don't believe and fall away? And here's Paul's answer um, in verse 6 of our passage today. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Okay? Not all of Israel belong to Israel. What does that mean? It means that they're not all elect. Not all chosen, predestined to be true, eternal Israel. Not all who are historically chosen are eternally chosen. Not all those who belong to Israel in the physical sense belong to true Israel in the spiritual sense. And this has always been true throughout the Old Testament. If you look at the scriptures, whether it's in Genesis or Exodus or all the rest, not all of Israel submit to God. And uh, many of them turn away from God and worship idols till the day they die. And even though they were visibly um, circumcised as Israelites, visibly invited into the temple to worship, visible part of the covenant community, yet they were not saved at that invisible level, that permanent level at the heart level. So to be a true Israel, um, you got to be eternally chosen and given a new heart. And this is where election comes in. The elect are those who have been chosen to be true Israel, given salvation by God as a gift that can never be taken away. They are predestined to be with God forever, according to his will, and they will never fall away. And here's what Paul goes on to say about this election of, of true eternal Israel in verse 11. Though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Okay, so what you have to understand about this election is the basis of it is not anyone's performance or anyone's works. Because the choosing, the election came before anyone was born or anyone did anything good or bad. 
they were not predestined based on some condition they had met. This was unconditional. This was unconditional election. When they were not yet born, had done nothing good or bad, God's purpose of election continued. Why? What's the cause? Because of him who calls. Paul, again, emphasizes this in verses 15 and 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So election is not conditioned on human will or exertion, but on one thing only, and that's the will of God. It's God's sovereign decision. That's the basis. It's his decision that sets apart true eternal Israel from those who are merely on the outside, on the visible level, belonging to Israel. And I'm going to address more objections later, but here's one that just immediately surfaces at this point. The most common objection, one of the most common objections that's raised at this point is, I thought God is love. How could he, being a God of love, love so unequally? How, how can he love in such a uh, hierarchical way or, or a discriminatory way? Even? And if you look at the Bible, it's true. There's no doubt. The Bible describes God as a God of love. God is love. But it is not true. It is not true that God loves everyone or everything equally. Now listen to the following statements that you might just hear from me on any given day, that you might hear me say. I love basketball. I love movies. I love Starbucks coffee. Don't judge. I love my kids. I love my wife. I love you guys. You knew very well as you heard those statements that I was not using the word love equally. Uh, I was not using the word love indiscriminately. But I was using it very discriminately. <laughs> I was using it in a very hierarchical sense of the word. There's various levels of love that I have just described for you, right? Uh, you clearly understand that I love my kids more than I love Starbucks. Right? <laughs> what's, this, what's this hesitancy in your eyes? <laughs> clearly I love my children more than I love Starbucks coffee. But do you blame me for that? Do, do, you, do you think I'm, I'm therefore not in a way, uh, uh, loving properly? Um, do you think I'm morally to be blamed if I were to love my wife more than my friends or my friends more than my neighbor? No. Um, we have an intuitive understanding that a certain hierarchy, uh, when it comes to who we love, how much we love them, is actually necessary. It's healthy, right? What is, uh, what is sinful jealousy? According to the Bible, Sinful jealousy is when we want to get rid of this hierarchy altogether and feel entitled to levels of love that we're not actually entitled to. And righteous jealousy, proper biblical and godly jealousy, is when you or your object of love is rightly entitled to the affection and love that you desire. So when God desires the affections and love of his bride, right, that's righteous jealousy. But when we desire uh, something that we are not entitled to, um, and, and we feel as though we should be treated in a certain way by God when we're not entitled to it, that's, that's sinful jealousy. 
I think this kind of dynamic is best explained by the fact that we're created in God's image, you and I. Because right? God himself has a hierarchy of love. He, God loves the world. He loves creation. He loves the, the stars in the skies. He loves the mountains. He loves the animals. He loves sinners. He loves his enemies. And he loves his bride. He loves his church. And he also has, in various different levels, uh, this hierarchy of love, the way in which he loves all of these things and all of these people. There is a very special love here that's unequal to any of the other loves that I just mentioned, and that's his love for his chosen bride, his spiritual wife, true, eternal Israel, the body of Christ. All those who belong to the one true offspring of Abraham, Christ. And for this bride, he's going to do something he'll never do for anyone else in the history of the world. He will have his son marry her and adopt her into his family forever. And, and the, the wedding ring that he gives this bride on this very special occasion is, it, it's not baptism, it's election. It's not circumcision, it's his predestination. It's his predestining love. It's his gift of his mercy and love ad infinitum <laughs> to infinity and beyond. Okay. That's the gift of his love towards his bride. And it's, it's not given to anyone else. It's exclusive. It's reserved <laughs> for his bride. So what is the basis of election? It's not something that's mean-spirited. It's not something that's um, discriminatory in an evil way, immoral way. It's his special, unique, unequal, unrivaled love for his bride. That's the basis. That's the basis. It's special because it's unconditional and it's reserved for a very special someone, and that is the church. Now, as the recipients of this kind of love then, what is the proper response? Celebration and worship. As soon as you realize, I am the recipient of this unrivaled, special, unconditional love, the only proper response to that is celebration and worship. And this is how the basis of election calls us to worship God and to celebrate what he's done for us. Well, Paul, being the, the brilliant logician that he is, he, he anticipates some objections Okay. So let's turn to some of those now, and let's see how that can also continue to invite us to celebrate what God has done and, and, and worship him. He starts us off with this uh, verse in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Okay. Is this unfair of God to, to choose some to be his bride and, and not others? By no means. And he, he goes on to explain using Pharaoh as an example. Okay, why would he do that? Okay, let's go to the text. It says in verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Okay. So does that mean that God had foreordained that Pharaoh would refuse to let the Israelites go and that he would therefore send the ten plagues upon Egypt and miraculously deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, drown the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Did God foreordain that Pharaoh would be hardened to that point? 
that, that would lead all these events to then actualize, yes. That's, what, that's exactly what Paul is saying. Which is why it says in, he says in verse 18, so then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Okay. Now that's also kind of going back to what I just mentioned earlier about God's special love, right? his special love for those whom he will have mercy. Right? He can gift that to whomever he wills. But then Paul anticipates a follow-up objection to that in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Why does, still, why does God still hold Pharaoh responsible then if he wasn't even able to, to unharden his own heart? Pharaoh can't unharden himself. So why would God then hold him responsible and then send all these plagues and save his people this way? Uh, this kind of also goes back to what we talked about two weeks ago. I don't know if you remember the, the reversal of that line in Spider-Man. Remember that? Uh, with great power comes great responsibility. Remember that? And we, we talked about how the reverse of that isn't always true. Okay. With, with great responsibility doesn't always come great power, meaning we are responsible for things that we're not capable of carrying out entirely, perfectly. Right? Just as my children are responsible to always obey and be respectful of their parents, do they have the ability to carry that out? No. Do they therefore lose the responsibility? No, they still have that responsibility. So that applies here as well. I just want to point that out. Um, but what is Paul's answer? Look at verses 20 to 21. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Here's what he's doing. He's giving us this sort of macro picture answer, this big picture answer that the questioner isn't really, wasn't really anticipating. He's basically saying, doesn't God have the authority to do as he wishes with his cre creation that he created out of nothing? Can he as the potter do as he wishes with his clay? Can the molder uh, mold one lump of clay into uh, a beautiful cup to drink out of and another lump into a, a potty for babies. Does God the creator have any less authority over his creation uh, than a human potter over his clay? This macro picture answer is pointing us to this one thing, that this absolute sovereign authority of God to do as he desires. Think of a human author creating a story. Does he or she have the authority to, to write their story however they desire? Uh, can, can J.K. Rowling choose a young schoolboy named Harry Potter to be the hero, and another schoolboy named Tom Riddle to be the villain, to be the... the Right, the point of him becoming so evil that he is right, he who must not be named. And the way they, the, these characters developed was ultimately because the, the author wrote them that way and not because of what they had done previously. Does a human author have the right to do that? We will say yes. Well, Paul's point is, why doesn't God? 
as a supreme author of all things who created everything out of nothing, uh, why doesn't he have that prerogative to author his story his way? And in a sense, right, the characters in the story can't suddenly raise their fists at the author and say, why did you write me this way? Right? You're not going to sit in the movie theater watching The Deathly Hollows and suddenly see Voldemort turning around looking at you going, I don't want to be a villain. Right? You know, <laughs> that will not happen. Right? That's, just, that's existentially impossible. Um, and we would think that's inappropriate. Why? Because the author has the authority. The author has the authority to write the story however she wants. And if we give this much prerogative to a human author, uh, we ought to give the same prerogative to the Almighty. Now, now think about this too. On, on the human level, once we exit like a movie theater, right, after this amazing film, I actually really enjoyed the, the Deathly Hallows in the, in the theater. It was a really good cinematic experience. And, and we can walk out with certain feelings of admiration, perhaps, or... Um, uh, affection even towards the protagonist in the story, right? Whether that's Harry Potter or Aslan or Aragon, right? But, but practically, like in real life, in reality, our praise and the, the actual admiration and adoration go to whom? The author, right? The author who wrote the story, who created it all. Um, we praise and celebrate the author who authored the story, and here's what verse 17 says, right? Uh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The, the ultimate purpose is to proclaim the glory of God, the author. It all comes down to this. It's for the fame and praise and glory of the author's name. Why? Because he sovereignly authored it all. And he can rightfully take the spotlight. He can use all of existence, all of creation, and intend all of it for his glory because it's his universe. <laughs> I remember hearing a story of a parent taking their young child to a kid's uh, classmate's birthday party. And it was just a really nice setup and and. The birthday girl was sitting at the, the center of the table, right? It's a beautiful, decorated setup. And there's all these presents surrounding her. It's wonderful. She's having a great time. Uh, she's wearing the birthday crown and everything. All the attention is on her. And then this boy suddenly starts crying and yelling, saying, It's not fair. <laughs> How come she gets all the, all the gifts and I get nothing? It's all about her. And the boy's mom, <laughs> furious, uh, pulls him to the side and says to him, Hey, this is not your party. <laughs> and I think that that just might be what Paul is trying to communicate to us here about our lives, about the world in which we live. It's not your party. And that's not meant to scare you. Uh, that's meant to call you to celebrate something other than your glory, and that's the glory of the author. 
Think about what living for your glory costs you. Think about it for a minute. Right? To, to try to shoulder the burden of glorifying your own life, magnifying your own name, making yourself praiseworthy. Isn't that what causes us to malfunction, <laughs> become perfectionistic, workaholic, anxious, fearful of people, people-pleasing, paralyzed by what the opinions of others are? Paul is showing us a way out of that, out of all of that. Live for the enjoyment of the glory of God. Celebrate him. See him as the praiseworthy one. So in verses 23-24, he says, God, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, he chose and he called even us, who had no business drawing near to God's glory, even us, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, he chose us, called us, to behold that glory and draw near to that glory and enjoy that glory. See, in God's story, we don't just see the wrath of God upon Pharaoh, upon hardened sinners. In fact, we see something much more prominent than that, and that is his mercy and his compassion upon hardened sinners who then become softened. We see him softening billions and billions of hearts so that they would behold the glory of God. And this uh, also relates to another common objection that's not mentioned here explicitly, but it's implied in the question, why does he still find fault? And that's the, that's the question, that's the objection stemming from um, the, the libertarian view of free will. And that's a philosophical term that we don't have to get into too much, but basically it's a view of free will that says uh, you can choose from either alternative, whatever alternative, uh, without any sort of external influence or causation, even God. Even God won't mess with your free will. That's libertarian free will. It's completely free from external influence or causation. And so if that's your view of free will, then of course you would naturally ask, why does he still find fault? Because it's got to hinge on that, right? It's got to be, if, if God's influencing the will, how does he still find fault? So if you were Neo and you can choose the red pill or the blue pill, I hope you know what I'm talking about, right? If, if you haven't seen The Matrix, God have mercy on your... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's, it's, it's worth checking out. So, so this character named Neo, he's choosing between the red pill and the blue pill. And the premise is without any sort of external influence from the matrix. In that, at that moment, at least, right, he's sort of free from the matrix, supposedly. Free from the matrix. And he's choosing either the red pill or the blue pill. And then when he chooses a red pill, his eyes open and he sees reality for what it is. And then he becomes a hero of the story. The, in a sense, in a sense, the non-reformed Arminian view of choosing God is sort of like that. It's us taking the red pill. Right? Without the influence, without the external influence of God sort of compelling your will. That's a libertarian view of free will. And so that is sort of hidden underneath this, this objection. Why does he still find fault? Right? It's not as though Pharaoh took the blue pill. Okay? God sort of gave him the blue pill. That's, that's where the objection is coming from. But we kind of addressed this with the, the author's story analogy earlier. Like, we, we don't blame J.K. Rowling or we, we don't blame J.R.R. Tolkien, right, um, for the sins of the villains in the story, right? Um, you can't, you don't find fault in the author, right? Um, because the ultimate story is good, the ultimate ending is good, good triumphs over evil, and, and that's enough for us to celebrate. 
Um, so in a sense, libertarian free will is seeking to defend where no defense is needed, in a sense. Um, but the other problem with, with this view of free will is, it, according to the theologian uh, John Frame, this free will doesn't exist. This state of being uninfluenced by anything or anyone, without any external input, without any external causation, does not exist. Right? Whether it's our uh, culture, our upbringing, our, our chemistry, our circle of friends, we're always under some influence. We're always externally caused by a, a host of things. And to say, therefore, there's this pristine, untouched will, that's, that's an impossible thing to defend. So the, here's the better definition of free will, which is real. <laughs> it exists according to the Reformed tradition. According to our tradition, here's the definition of free will, which Reformed theologians consider biblical, that free will is simply the freedom to do what you want to do. Is that too simplistic? Here's, here's how Jesus kind of describes it. He says, if your heart is good, then out of that good heart you will produce good treasure. But if your heart is evil, then out of your heart you will produce evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So your mouth has the freedom to say whatever you want. But if the heart is bad, then what will come out will be bad. And if the heart is good, what will come out will be good. So free will is almost like, like 2020 vision, right? We have the we have the vision. But if you're if you're stuck in a pitch dark cave, having 2020 vision isn't all that helpful. So that's almost like having free will. If, if you have free will, great. But if your heart is darkened, what good is that? You only do what you want, but what you want would be sin. What you want would be something that falls short of the glory of God. We don't really value that all that much, therefore. It exists, but it doesn't save us. We do have free will, right? the ability to do what we want to do, but we don't want God. <laughs> we don't have a free heart. We don't have moral freedom, even if we have freedom of the will. So what good is free will? We, what we need is a free heart. That's the true solution to our predicament. So then, right, the hero of our story, right, this is where it all kind of comes to a close, is not us choosing the red pill to save ourselves and becoming, right, the hero of the story. The protagonist, the true hero of the story, has to be someone who comes to us and gives us a new heart. We need a hero who says, I'm going to give you a new heart and remove from you the, the, the heart of stone. That's literally what God gives us, according to Jeremiah. Or, instead of a hero who says, choose me and I'll choose you, we need a hero who says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And that's literally what Jesus says in John chapter 15, 16. This is why we celebrate this truth. Because it doesn't depend on our will and our exertion to save ourselves. Because otherwise it wouldn't be by grace alone and, and by God's mercy. It would be just our own goodness, our neoness to, to take the red pill. We should take the credit, therefore, because we had the good sense to choose God. But as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, it's not by works. And there's no room for boasting because it's all a gift. It's all a gift from God. See, if I had in any way willed or worked for my salvation and, 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 and earned it, then that means salvation is not a gift. It's my wages. I deserve it. Then the celebration and the worship kind of 
turns inward. It becomes something I, I direct towards myself. When think about your, uh, think about your paycheck. When you get your paycheck, for those of you who work, that's something you earned through your work and and through your will and your exertion, right? And that's why you don't. When you get your paycheck, you don't praise your boss. <laughs> you don't. You, you don't suddenly start celebrating. Oh, merciful boss, <laughs> how compassionate! Right? Praise be to my employer. But you don't. You don't bust out praise. Why? Because you you earned it. You you deserve it, right? This is not how salvation works. It's all by grace. It's all by the mercy of God. And that's why we, we, we say solely Deo Gloria. All glory be to God alone. And this is the good news. And it's essential, and we'll get to this a bit more when we get to the perseverance of the saints, but this is also essential because if, if it hinges on our free will for us to then choose into salvation, then it's just as possible for us through our own sin and rebellion to choose out of it. If, it. if it was up to us to step into salvation, it can be up to us to step out of it. That's not good news, is it? That you can lose it. That you can lose it. Right? You hear all these news about people like suddenly becoming millionaires uh, by investing in a certain stock, Right? But you also hear a lot of tragic news about how overnight they become drive-through workers at McDonald's. Why? Because you can lose it all. Right? You can lose it all overnight. Is that how salvation works? Is that is that the gospel that, that you can gain it one day and suddenly lose it? No, the answer is if you have been saved by the sovereign choice of God, then He will keep you sovereignly. If it was up to his will to save you, then it's not up to your will to be unsaved. It's essential to the gospel, and therefore we celebrate. Uh, finally, uh, I want to ask you to consider Jesus, the person behind election. Uh, think about the fact that Jesus himself was here. He walked the earth, occupying space and, and time, living out this thing called history with you and me. What does that mean? That means the author of life, the giver of life himself, right, entered into the story that he authored. The one who predestined everything in a way became a predestined part of the story. The, the word of God who created everything became a part of creation. This is how Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Submitted to the Father's sovereignty 100%. This is how he lived his life on earth. This is how he prayed, your will be done and not mine. He was content in God's sovereignty. He was satisfied in God's sovereignty. He submitted to God's sovereignty. He knows the struggle of that too. As he was praying in Gethsemane and and blood coming out of his, his pores, he struggled, he wrestled with submission to God's sovereignty, praying, your will be done and not mine. He can sympathize with you. When life feels like this is not going the way I, I want it to go, but somehow this is as God had intended it, and you can't make sense of it, Jesus is there with you. 
He sympathizes with you. He understands what you're going through. And we also see this, that as he continued to trust in the sovereignty and authority of God to the point of dying on the cross, to the point of being buried in the grave, he came out of the other end of that grave victorious and glorious. That's what we celebrated on Easter Sunday, the the historical, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was exalted and lifted up by the Father, and he lives even now to inherit everything that the Father had given to him. And he's inviting all of us, all of you, me, even now, today, to trust in his saving work, to enjoy that same glorious ending. So if you put your trust in Jesus, you repent of your sins, you submit to his sovereign will from this day forward, this glorious ending to Christ's story becomes your ending in your story. And you can always be assured, right? even if you're struck down like Jesus, you'll never be destroyed, just as Jesus wasn't ultimately destroyed. Even if you're persecuted in this life, you'll never be abandoned, just as Jesus was not utterly abandoned. Why? The sovereignty of God was behind it. The authority of God was behind it all. And just as he rose, we will rise with him. We will rise from death itself. This is the hope we have in Jesus, the person who showed us the glorious life lived under the sovereignty of God. The glorious life lived under this predestined narrative of God. And in a sense, if it's, if it's good enough for Jesus, perhaps it can be good enough for us. We have a reason to celebrate and worship when we meditate upon the unconditional election of God. He's loved you without condition. He's chosen you without condition. And therefore, no failure on your part can ever, ever separate you from the love of God. So all that's left for us to do then is to respond in love in the same way. Love God without condition. Love God without condition. He's met all the conditions for you, so love him without condition. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we ask that, Lord, you would uh, remind us of uh, the unconditionality of your love for us, that it was before anything that we have done. You chose to love us while we were still sinners, while we are still sinners. Lord, help us to find our comfort in this today and in this doctrine and this truth, and may it bring us to celebrate what you have done and to worship you for who you are. And, Lord, may we be able to rest in your sovereign care in your authority, as we look to your son, Jesus Christ, who fully submitted to your sovereignty, and despite all that he has suffered through, Lord, you gave him a glorious ending and a glorious uh, present existence in the heavens. And Lord, we thank you for the promise of inviting us into that very same story. And Lord, may we, by faith, enter into it. Gift us this faith uh, according to your mercy. According to your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.